after the plate goes by. If you could open up to Psalm 50. I, uh, <clears throat> I want to thank Pastor Ken, Pastor Jared, and Pastor Derek for teaching. You guys really have been blessed with those guys. And it's an honor to have them preach. Actually, Cher, could you turn me up just a hair? My voice is a little scratchy. Thank you. I swallowed a mint before I got up here, and my throat's a little scratchy. I'm sorry. Drives me crazy. But really, uh, those guys are a blessing, and I, I just uh, feel privileged to be able to work with them and thank you as a church family um, as you receive them and listen to them. I really appreciate um, how you allow, like even Jared, to be who he is last week. It was a real blessing. I want to begin with a preemptive strike. And you'll understand what I mean by this. A preemptive strike is when you strike first because if you don't, somebody will strike you. In one week, I turn 50 years old next Sunday, and I want nothing. So share. No, no. I am not special. I'm just like you. Sometimes in our culture, this Baptist culture, the pastor is the guy. Let's get him up there. Let's give him a bouquet of flowers. Just, I turn 50, it's another day. No big deal, so preemptive strike. Zoomp. I want nothing, no singing. Zip. Derek, if he's here, nothing. Zero. Jared, preemptive strike. Stop it now. All right, so. <laughs> no. Negative. Negatory. And, and, but I, got, I do have to, on the other end, got to tell you, 50's weird. Turning 50 is very strange. To me, 50 is old. <laughs> Let's face it, it's old. I'm telling you. When I, I can remember I was 10, and my mom was having a birthday party for one of her friends, and she turned 40. And it was like, this lady's really old. I'm 10 years, I'm going to be 10 years older than that. I still feel like I'm 21. I got to be honest with you. I, I got to be honest. It's weird. It's a weird feeling. And so with 50 coming, you know, like it says in Psalm 90, you count your days. Like, wow. It's scary. I gotta, here's, to give you the best illustration of what 50 is like, I told this illustration in a sermon a while ago, probably about three or four years ago, but some of you probably weren't around then, so I'll tell it again. About 25 years ago, my dad won a... He was a salesman. He won a commission prize to Hawaii. He took my mom, took my brother-in-law and my sister, and they went on a nice trip to the Big Island. While they were at the Big Island, they wanted to go on a, a sightseeing trip, and so what they did is they rented a car. And my dad likes big cars, so he rented a Lincoln Town car. If you know the Lincoln Town car, it's big. The front end would touch that wall, and the back end <laughs> will touch this. And you sail it. You know, you can hoist the sail. It's a big, big car. It's a boat. And as they were in that Lincoln Town car, they decided just to say, hey, let's circle the Big Island. Let's go around, find the road that follows the coast, and circle the Big Island. So they started doing that. They got in their Lincoln Town car and got on a two-lane road that was paved, and they started just looking at the ocean. And all of a sudden, they weren't really realizing it, that two-lane paved road turned into a one-lane gravel road. And then all of a sudden, that one-lane gravel road started climbing, and as it climbed, it was turning into a one-lane dirt road with people walking by looking at them like that. 
And as they were going up this road, it started getting more narrow and more narrow and more narrow where the outside edge of the tire was almost halfway over. My dad looked down. He said it was 2,000 feet down into the Pacific Ocean cliff. My sister's in the back seat. He said the right side of the car was kind of scraping as it was going higher and higher. And my dad said he was white-knuckled. And my sister Tammy, if you know my sister Tammy, she's rather loud. She said, I'm not having fun anymore. I'm not having fun anymore. Dad, stop. I'm not having fun anymore. That's what it's like turning 50. <laughs> it really is. I am not kidding you. When I was raised, I was raised, I probably, some of my sisters would say, I was raised sort of spoiled. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But I really thought... The goal of life is fun. I mean, I thought you get a job so you can have a lot of money so you can go do things and you can have fun. And I think underneath the surface, I think we all believe that in there a little bit, that we're on earth to have fun. Just like my uh, dad wanted to go around the island to have fun, but then he realized there's some realities that are rather dangerous. When you start getting 50, especially if you're a pastor, I do an awful lot of funerals. I've had people in my office whose lives are destroyed. Next month will be 10 years from my dad's passing. You start realizing, I'm not having fun anymore, and I'm not saying it in a bad way, like poor Chris, poor little Chrissy up there, he's not having fun. I'm saying it in a reality way. It gets scary out there. And so as I was considering what psalm should I do, because this is the month of psalms, I thought I'd do Psalm 50 because I turned 50. But then I started reading Psalm 50. It's scary. Like, it's scary. And I decided to do it because I think it's what we need to hear. Actually, a guy came up to me after the sermon and said I didn't like it. I didn't like it because it wasn't fun. <laughs> it's not fun sometimes, but it is. But there's a difference, and you, what you're going to see is there's something so much better than happiness and fun, and that's what Psalm 50 is going to talk about. So if you open it up, we're just going to take part one this week and part two next week. We're going to start in verse one. I memorized it in NIV. If you have the ESV, it's it's almost identical, but it begins like this. Oh, in part one, I was really trying to be, come up with a really creative title, so part one's God. All right, here we go. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, or out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, or perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he will not be silent. A fire devours before him. And around him, a storm of fire or a tempest, it rages. That's not fun. i got to be honest with you. That's not, it's kind of like going up the mountain. It's getting kind of precarious. He says, He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather together my consecrated ones or my faithful ones, those who've made a covenant with me by sacrifice. 
wants them to gather, listen to him. And then he says, And the heavens proclaim, or the heavens declare. So if the heavens were going to have a sermon to give you, like if I could gather all the heavens up and I brought them up here behind the pulpit, what would the title of their sermon be? He is righteous. The heavens declare he's righteous. And he will judge his people. So that's where we're going to begin. It's all about God. If I were to ask you, rhetorically speaking, what is God like? How would you answer that? Like if, if I just said to you, all right, tell me about God. What would he be like? What would come off of your lips? It's interesting, I was reading a book that said in, uh, the sociologist did that exact thing. His name is Christian Smith. And from 2001 to 2005, Christian Smith a study of teen spirituality in America today. So he did a study with teenagers from the year 2001 to 2005. From his extensive interviews, Smith concluded that the dominant form of religion or spirituality of American young people today is, and here's the phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. And you'll, I'll explain it in a second. But he said, after interviewing all these teenagers, the concept that came to his mind the most is that they believe God is, it's an issue of moralism, therapy, and deism. And I'll explain that in a second. He goes on to write, in our survey, 22% of teenagers felt extremely close to God, but they didn't believe in a God out in the world. They believe he just lived here inside, inside of me. And this writer says, apparently God's involvement is restricted to only the inner space of their private world. Smith observed that most teens, including those reared in evangelical churches like ours, who said their faith is very important, so they come from evangelical churches, they say their faith is very important. He says, these kids are stunningly inarticulate concerning the actual content of their faith. So he's saying, even though they come from churches, and they say God's important, they don't articulate God too well, because they have a fuzzy concept. They have this moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, um, interviewing teens, one finds little evidence that the agents, being parents, pastors, and teachers, are not really being that effective as they used to be. It seems there is very little serious ability to state, reflect upon, or examine beliefs, much less apply them to daily life. So his, he just wanted to study teens to see what they're learning from their parents and their pastors, and it said, really, they don't know what they're learning. And he said, but if I, let's, if I could put it down, there's, here's five things they believe. Number one, they do believe that God created a world. All right? That's what they believe. Number two, what they believe is God wants people to be good, be nice, be fair, just like all the other religions. That's moralism. Moralism is to be good, just do good things. Just don't be Adolf Hitler and everything else will be okay. That's basically the idea. Third thing. 
Goal of life. Why, why did he make you? So you could be happy. So you could be happy and feel good about who you are. A lot of psychologists call this self-actualization and self-esteem. Have you ever seen MT, uh, I'm sorry, Saturday Night Live, this guy named Stuart Smalley? Stuart Smalley, if you know who he is, he'd stare in the, he'd stare in the mirror and he would talk like this. And he would say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's what that's all about. We do have preachers that kind of say this stuff too, big preachers that say, I just want you to be, God wants you to be the best you can be, you, you can be. I won't tell you who that is. We, there's also a pastor, he's dead now, but he goes, He'd talk like this, kind of holy. And he would say, God wants you to be positive because there's power and positivity. T, positivity. Be good and be happy. That's why we're here. The fourth thing about moralistic therapeutic deism is God doesn't need to really be that involved. Deism is this idea that God made the world and let it go and he's given you all these fancy rules. You can live it yourself any way you want. Just be good as you do it. The idea is that God kind of, it's kind of like a rich dad who gave a new car to a 16-year-old, threw him the keys and said, just have fun and don't bother me because I'm going to go in the living room and watch Game of Thrones and the only time you can bother me if you get in an accident or something. That's sort of how people view God. I call on him when I'm really in trouble, but other than that, he's up watching his favorite TV show of Highway to Heaven or something like that. You know, he's probably watching Little House on a Prairie. That's what he's watching. He likes Charles. He likes Charles. I know you're saying, Chris, don't mock my show. I'm not. I'm saying God would like that show. He'd especially like the Waltons. I know he would. I liked it. It used to make me cry at the end of that song. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Mary Ellen. Anyhow, number five. Stop it. All right, number five. Moralistic therapeutic deism believes good people go to heaven when they die. There's this cool new teaching. Everybody's in unless you opt out. Meaning you don't need to believe, just don't be bad. Where you say, I don't want God anymore. If you say, I don't want God anymore, then you're out. But you're in if you don't opt out. Everybody's in. Or if you join ISIS, you're not in either. That's another one. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. God just spun the world. Be good, do good, be happy. But who is God? I'll tell you who God is according to Psalm 50, and this is where it gets kind of dangerous. This is where it's sort of like I've been driving along the coast, but we're going to start going higher now and the road's going to get a little more narrow, and that tire edge, it's going to skim the side. Verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord. That's how he identifies himself. In the Hebrew, it's El Elohim Yahweh. El means the self-existent one. In him is everything. He's infinite. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, omnipresent. 
That's where Elohim comes in. Elohim is the plural form of El, which means he's the all-encompassing one. And then the Lord is Jehovah. Jehovah is, means the covenant-making God. So you remember when Moses was going to go free my people, and he said, who should I say sending me? God spoke out of the burning bush. Tell him I am, I am that I am sent you. That's Jehovah. But that means he's eternal. So the first thing we can say is, God is. It's pretty fancy. Thomas Aquinas put it like this. He was the uncaused cause. Like there's always this question, who's the first mover of creation? Who started it all? Because the first mover, then everything followed afterwards. He was uncaused, and he caused everything else. So he's the uncaused cause. He's eternal. He's lived in eternity. The way Paul says it next, in him we live and move and have our being. So God, in his eternality and his infinite capacity, is, Jared Chumi's cool film, the essence of, he's being. We aren't being. We exist because he exists. We exist because he allows us to exist. We breathe because he gave us breath today. But he doesn't need us. Second thing, and this is verse 2. Verse 2 is pretty cool. I love verse 2. It says, it says he lives in perfection in Zion. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He emanates his glory and he dwells in Zion. He doesn't live, like it's not this mystery, how do I get to God inside of me? He exists outside of me in a real place where it's perfect. It's perfect in heaven. Theologians like to say God invades us. It's an alien invasion. He's outside of us. And then he comes into us through the Holy Spirit based on faith. But however... In Zion is where all perfection dwells. He's perfect. He's perfectly beautiful. It's very fascinating in Job, chapter 31. If you know the story of Job, Job um, had a bad life. I mean, he had a bad life. and He had some buddies that were saying, Job, you know why you have a bad life? Because you're bad. Basically, that's, what it's, that's the summation of Job. And so in, in chapter 31, he's evaluating his life, and he goes, I'm not bad. Everything I do, I try to be righteous. I try to be pure. I try to be good. And the reason why, he gives the reason of verse 23 of chapter 31, is because for fear of his glory or his splendor, I could not do such thing. Meaning God is so beautiful, he's terrifying. He's terrifyingly beautiful, and out of Zion is where his terrifyingly beautiful presence dwells, and it shines forth from there. Funny, when Stephen died, right before Stephen got stoned, it said he looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God shining while Jesus was standing, waiting for him. But it is here where all of our dreams come true, where satisfactions lie. It's in Christ. I want you for a second go to Jeremiah chapter 9. Because I think we look for perfection or the satisfaction of life in different places. And it really should only be in Zion where the perfect God dwells. Jeremiah 9.23 
Thus says the Lord, thus says Jehovah. <clears throat> Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, meaning if you're smart and intelligent, don't put all of your you know, confidence in that. Don't boast about that. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Wow, did we have some Olympic champ? I mean, we, had, we won so many medals. We are the power country. This says don't boast in your might, your strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. This is really what we would like to boast in. Riches is what gives a lot of people in our society importance, especially if they can pay for things that they don't need to pray about it because they have so much money. He says, don't boast about those things. Verse 24, then what are we supposed to boast about? But let him who boasts or him who is confident or him who finds satisfaction find it in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. He is perfection. And he shines. It's everything I dreamed. The third, the third thing we can say about the mighty one God, the Lord, is the goal of life is holiness and righteousness. Not happiness. And you can read that and um, really... 3 through 6, he's talking about gather to me my faithful ones, my holy ones. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. So we are going to be judged based on how we stack up to his righteousness. And so he wants us holy and righteous. And I'll talk about that in a second. Fourth thing is that God isn't a deist, he's a theist. God, it's theism. God speaks, he's present always. He doesn't just cast the world and leave. He always is involved. Verse 1, the mighty one God, the Lord, speaks. It's not he's going to speak. It's not that he has spoken. He speaks. It's continual. Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silent. He wants to speak. Verse 4, he calls the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. And in verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. I believe he speaks in four ways, and I'm just going to put C's on them so you can, it's a memory tool. The first C is he speaks in creation. Psalm 19, day after day, the heavens declare, day after day, he pours forth speech. His beauty is emanated by his creation. A couple days ago, Pedro Sanchez, my wife's fiance, his brother Ray had a baby. What did I say? My wife's fiance. That's kind of like my, I'm my own grandpa. Did you ever hear that song? No, so I'm not my own grandpa. So you're right. It is my daughter's fiance, Pedro. And his brother's wife had a baby. His brother didn't have the baby. But his wife had a baby. Anyhow, you guys know I'm communicating. You're getting me. Anyhow, I'm losing this whole thing, Andrew. This baby's unbelievable. If you saw this baby, you can't tell me that baby wasn't created in the image of God. Ah, it's coincidence. It's not coincidence. Day after day, his beauty, his creation pours forth speed. And he even uses guys like me that don't speak too well. So creation. The second thing is he speaks through our conscience. 
we know he is. We just know it. We, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. We can stifle our conscience. But it says in Psalm 14, the fool is the one who said in his heart, there is no God. The, the fool is the mindless one. The mindless one. The third thing he speaks in is through his covenant promises. What he's promised us, those he loves, his word, his principles. The fourth way he speaks to us is through Christ. It says Jesus in these last days has spoken to us. He's spoken. And this speech is continuous because he's now sent us the spirit of Christ who is exactly like Jesus into our lives. God speaks. He's not off watching Game of Thrones on his couch in heaven. He's waiting to work now with you, but you have to hear. And the final thing I'd say is this, and this is to me the most important. In moralistic therapeutic deism, people all believe if you're good, you go to heaven. In this, it recognizes no one's good. Relationship with the living God is founded solely and completely on a sacrifice. On a sacrifice. I need a mediator between the holy God and me who's not. I mentioned the first service, but Jared gave me the song, and there's a song that sings about this sacrifice. And listen to this one line. It says, The God who reigns on high has opened his own veins for you. What that means is he let his son die so you could meet with him. To say that to me, when we say all people who are good go to heaven, we are utterly mocking the death of his son. It's a mockery. I know you're being nice when you believe that. You're being nice to people. You're being really sweet, saying love wins. That's nice. But he died. That's the, son of, that's the Son of God died. We only relate to a holy God through sacrifice. That's the biggest difference between the mighty God and this moralistic, therapeutic fuzzball. So you could say, so what, what, what are you going to choose? Which one are you going to choose? But before I go there, go to the next slide. The next slide is this. All of us are accountable to God. Look, look at verse 1 again. From the mighty one God the Lord speaks and he summons. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. So everybody who's within the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, it's a universal statement, the statement of the poetic verse of universality. You're being summoned. You're going to be summoned. If the government came to you and said you're summoned to uh, go to a trial... I, don't, I just kind of want to ignore you. I you can't ignore the government. They're coming after you. This is saying the mighty one, God the Lord, summons you and is going to hold you accountable for your life. Some people say, yeah, but I don't want him in my life. I don't want him in my life. But he is in your life because you live and move and have your being because of him. 
You exist because he exists. Second thing, some people say, yeah, but even if I don't listen to his voice, ah, who cares? I'm not going to be responsible. Go to John chapter 12. I can feign ignorance. Go to John chapter 12. I think this may be for our day and age, our time. This may be a verse you need to really know, understand, memorize, and have available to the person who says, you have no right to judge me. Don't judge me. That's our culture. Don't judge me. I can do what I want. Don't judge me. Who cares what I do with my life? It's not your life. Don't judge me. And here's what I would say. Chapter 12, verse 48. These are the words of Christ. And he's talking about judgment. The one who rejects me, the person who rejects me and does not receive my words, does not take my words, they have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Don't judge me. I'm not judging you. The word of God judges. Do you see the difference? There's, a, there's this big idea that I like to put it like this. If somebody, let's say somebody that I love comes home drunk, they got a bloody knife and they murdered somebody, and I say, you are drunk and you just murdered somebody. Don't judge me. That's not judgment. That's a statement of what I see. God's word states behavior that he requires. We have to come up against that. Not personal opinion. I think this whole idea of don't judge me is just a way to God's moralistic, therapeutic, de deistic God. He's a nice fuzzball. So if he's not, what does he want then? What, what does he actually want from me? What does he want? If we go back to Psalm 50, I think what God wants is not what we think he wants. You'll understand in a second. Go to Psalm 50, verse starting in verse 5. So verse 5 says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and in the heavens declares righteousness, for God himself is judge. So then you have verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me, I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And that's a rhetorical question of, of course not. God doesn't eat animals, and he doesn't drink blood. And he doesn't need our sacrifices. In other words, here's what he's saying. Is he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our continual outward works of religion, nor our resources. We don't make him happy. There's this assumption. What God wants from us is to be good church people. Good church people. Doing the right things, dressed the right way, doing religious things. And he's saying, 
He's saying to Israel, I've seen your sacrifices. Will you stop? I don't need religion. It's funny about, oh, I was talking to a pastor. In our denomination, which we're a Baptist, very conservative Baptist denomination, pastors at one time, about 20 or 30 years ago, if you went on vacation to another town, they would like you to come back and bring a bulletin of the church you, used, you went to go visit while you're on vacation just to make sure you were going to church. God could care less. He could care less. I remember my dad, uh, my brother did not want to go to church. And my dad said, Don, you're driving to church. Even if you sit in the parking lot for that whole hour, you're going to church. And my brother would just sit in the car. See, I did it. That's not what God wants. He doesn't, he doesn't need... He doesn't need us coming to church. He doesn't need us dressing up. He doesn't need us being solid religious people. That's not what he wants. What does he want then? He wants three things. Here's what he wants. Number one, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What that means is God wants, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving is, is really in this verse, in the Hebrew, it means I want you to praise me. That's what Jared talked about last week. He doesn't want outward works, he wants our heart. That's really what he's saying. I want you to want me, that's really all I want. I want you to love me and to be overwhelmed with me. I want you to see the sacrifice that my son did for you and, and just be, let it change you. It's an inside thing. Second thing, he says, perform your vows to the Most High. This is where it gets, this is where it gets really important. He wants what is inside of us to start working through us. That's called integrity. He wants us to be the same on the outside that we are on the inside. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Deuteronomy 23. He's talking about fulfill your vows. Watch what it says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Verse 21 of Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Now here's the key, verse 23. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you promised with your mouth. What he's saying is, is be... The same person with your lips as you are in your heart. Quit lying. If you make a vow to God, if you make a promise to God, He knows if you're a fake or not. It's called hypocrisy. If you stand up, if you stand up here, and you make a vow to your wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, God watches that. If you uh, stand up here and you have a son 
and you say, I promise to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, God watches that. If you uh, get baptized and say, I'm going to commit myself to a church body, God watches that. If I sing a song like I sang this morning, I'll stand with heart abandoned. <laughs> That's a vow. We sing things that are terrifying. I remember I was leading youth group. We'd sing this song. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. I remember watching those kids singing that song. I said, we got to quit singing this song. Righteousness, righteousness is what I long for. Really? What God wants us to be on the inside is the same thing with our hands and our mouth, our feet and our lips. It's called integrity. You are solid all the way through. It's holiness. That's really what holiness is. Holiness is, I'm not a hollow shell. I'm solid. Solid on the inside and out. I'll tell you basically, here's what holiness is. Holiness is the kind of person, when you go up to that person, they are wise, they are patient, and you know that you can go to them for advice, and you know they're not, they're not there to impress you, they're there to serve you. A holy person's the kind of person that you can't insult, really, because they're humble. They're never really offended, honestly. A holy person, the best way to put it, is a holy person to me is a person that you know, knows, knows, really knows Jesus. I, I had this professor in college. I might have mentioned him to you before. He, was, he wasn't necessarily the best teacher, but every time he spoke, it's like he just got done talking to Jesus. So the kids that were in class, they would, they would just wait for what he had to say because I knew that guy knew Jesus. Have you ever met somebody that you knew when you were talking to them or in their presence, you knew they just knew Jesus, like really knew him. Would they say that about you? That's holiness. Holiness, when they're with the crowd, they don't always have to be swayed by the crowd. There was a question somebody had after the first service. They said, so, so you're saying I have to pick holiness or happiness? And I'm like, no, no, no. Holiness, holiness is thick. It's heavy. Happiness is a byproduct of a holy person. However, when you say, do you want me to be happy or holy, a happy person is, they're so momentary. Holiness is so permanent. The final thing this talks about in Psalms is, um, he just says, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. It's a heart that trusts him, that finds its Deliverance, its strength, its satisfaction in Him, Jesus who lives in Zion. It's faith. So here's how I just want to end. It's like this holiness is heavy, permanent, satisfying. That's what life is about. Happiness is light and ultimately empty. And when I'm a kind of person, become a kind of person that Inwardly is grateful, outwardly is truthful, and is totally faithful. 
I become what Isaiah says, an oak of righteousness, a tree that's massive. Actually, Boyd Kaler said that's not an oak tree, that's an ash tree. I got it from Wikipedia, so it's got to be an oak tree. So it's an oak that's just pot, like it's huge, and it gets shade, and you can swing on it, and we'll hold you up. It'll make it through one of our, you know, one of our terrifying Grand Rapids tornadoes. It's strong. I want to end with a story that's kind of like the first one. When I, I've been here 20 years, and uh, a lot of, I know a lot of people that came from my youth group and went to the military. Now what I've learned over the years is there's two kind of people that join the military. There's some people that join the military for the right reasons, and there's some people that join the military because they saw the commercials. I, if you know what I'm talking about, be all you can be. This is a great stepping stone for a higher degree. You can get a GI loan and get a new house. You can learn skills so you can be, you know, our military men, they are the ones that make it in finance. They make it in business. So really, you, you can join the military for the right reasons, which is to serve. Or you can join the military for the perks. Now what's interesting is there's a few people I know that joined the military for the perks and they actually saw warfare. And they were traumatized. I didn't sign up for this. Bullets whizzing by my head. I didn't sign up for that. You know, we had to go out in the desert. I didn't, I didn't, you know, some of the stuff I saw, decapitated bodies and broken limbs tore off. I didn't sign up for that. I'm ruined now. You know what that's done to me? It's called war. It's called war. What do you think you signed up for? And I kind of think that's sort of how we see this world. We have signed up for a circus. We haven't entered into this raging battle where Jesus Christ, the perfect person, was slaughtered. This person, Christ, you know what he gave to us by his death? We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not Mount Zion. I mean, not Mount, not the Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. Mount Zion where there's thousands upon thousands of angels in, in noisy assembly. Mount Zion is the place where Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel. It's where righteous men are made perfect. You and I are going to inherit this place. We're going to be sons and daughters of Christ. And I feel sometimes the way we teach Christianity is you have signed up for a full ride ticket to Cedar Point the rest of your life. You get to go on every ride and have as much cotton candy. And one writer said, we're not. No, we have, we are, we have, we have believed in a world where the enemy is the worst villain you could ever imagine. Satan is the most dangerous being that ever lived. But the hero, the hero, Jesus, is He's the greatest that you could ever set your eyes upon. And he wants you to be part of his kingdom. This isn't a game. And we are going to be called to account. I find, however, we don't want that. 
We just want to have fun. So is it uh, holiness or happiness? And he'd say, well, is that, a, is that the choice? I can have holiness or happiness? I would say, I want the happiness that comes after holiness. That's good. The happiness before holiness, it's silly. And a lot of us are running after that. What do you want? The happiness before holiness or the holiness that comes after happiness? The happiness that comes after holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 50. And thank you for this patient audience that God is willing to wrestle with some things that are hard to hear. Help us, Lord, to see rightly and to respect you. We thank you for all that you do for us, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.